Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. So welcome to episode four, episode, welcome to episode four of Mid Wretched. We are, four. yes, we are so excited because we thought that it would, t- as of this recording, we have over a hundred listens and we thought that that would take us like a very long time and it hasn't at all. So thank you so much to anyone who's listened to us. We really appreciate it. We didn't think that like anybody would care. Yeah, we would just be like us and our very nice partners that would listen to us. <laughs> exactly. And it's not. It's actually real people. So thank you, real people. We're so glad you're here. We hope you stay. We're going to do our best to keep things interesting and give you a good variety of true crime. And as a reward to ourselves for hitting our 100 listens, we bought ourselves some dumb spooky t-shirts. Well, I bought myself a dumb spooky sweatshirt. Mine you- just uh, is green and says plants on it. <laughs> I hate it when they're unisex because I don't know what unisex size I am. You know, uh, I just buy the regular size because I have man shoulders. But if I were you, I would size down like two. Jeez. Yeah. All right. Well, this is exciting though because we like promised ourselves some rewards. And what is in your mug tonight, friend? Um, in my mug, in my RBG mug, my yes. descent mug, because you know, long live a queen. Absolutely. Um, it is a spiced rum and hot cider. Oh, yeah. It is my favorite fall treat. Spiced rum and cider. And hot cider. Oh. If I had any if I had any caramel, I would put that in there, but I don't. Oh my god. Yum. It's <laughs> <That is> so <laughs> decadent and delicious sounding. <laughs> what do you got? I have uh, a sparkling wine because I was celebrating our 100 listens. Yay. So, I was like I guess I'm going to drink something sparkly because that's what you do when you're celebrating, right? Hell yeah. I made stew. I, do what I, <laughs> I made vegan mushroom tacos. <laughs> and that's, well, I don't like mushrooms, but I'm sure they're delicious. Oh, they are so good. I think one day I could convince you of these mushrooms. They're amazing. Mm. Amazing. Many have tried. Well, not me, I don't think. So... <sighs> All right. So you are taking us through a case today. So I just get to like sit back and not do any work. Yeah, I am taking you through the wild and wonderful case of the Cleveland Strangler. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I I take that back. It is not a wonderful case. Um, and unlike the Ypsilanti Ripper, there never is any manhunt. There's never a big like long investigation. And we'll get into why. But the Cleveland Strangler is Anthony Sowell. Oh, Anthony Sowell. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I knew I knew the name. <laughs> Tommy was looking at my list of cases and she was like, huh, I know that name, but I can't remember who he is. Yeah. And, you know, I like to tempt her and give her like hints and not actually tell her what cases I'm doing. Yeah. And that's kind of mean because you always ask what cases I'm doing and I always tell you, <laughs> which I guess like kind of feels like us in a nutshell, really. <laughs> 
yes, I just don't tell you anything and leave you guessing and you tell me everything. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Anthony Sowell. Okay, lay it yeah. on me. He was born on August 19th, 1949, the same date as my day. An auspicious day, the same birthday as my sister and us, Bill Clinton. <laughs> All terrible people. Yeah. <laughs> Except for well, my Well, not your sister. Yeah, not my sister. Bill Clinton has Bill Clinton. to answer for. Yeah, he really does. He has a lot to answer for. So Anthony Stoutwell grew up in Mount Pleasant, uh, the Mount Pleasant community of Cleveland, Ohio. And at the time, it was a pretty integrated community for Cleveland and for the country at the time. So one so, thing that we... Go ahead. Question. Yeah. When you say integrated, you mean like it was pretty much like black people and white people living in the same space harmoniously? Or it's do you not mean fully like... fully redlined. It was not fully redlined. Okay. Well... It was not fully redlined. For the time, that's pretty impressive. For now, that's actually pretty impressive. So... As a Chicagoan, yes, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, no, here too. So Anthony Sowell was born in 1949. I learned a really interesting fact today. Hmm. After World War II, the U.S. owned half of the world's wealth. Interesting. Yeah. So when we think of that, like, really booming post-war economy. Yeah. Yes, white people vastly benefited from that Mm. but with that much wealth coming in other communities um and ethnicities actually did get a little bit of that and so there were some relatively integrating neighborhoods Mm. and mount pleasant was one of those it was a pretty vibrant community pretty middle class super homey at the time and the house where anthony grew up in was 1878 page avenue in east cleveland okay we're going to talk about race issues quite a bit during this episode. So all of this talk about um, redlining and whatnot is not for nothing. Okay. It's well, you a- know I'm ready for this. I, I know you're so ready for this. I hope all of our listeners are ready for this because <laughs> it's basically like 80% of this story. <laughs> wow. Ooh, so- it makes me nervous, but I'm excited to hear about it. So Anthony grew up initially with his mother and sister and brother and grandmother in the Page Avenue house. His father was out of the picture. He never knew his dad. All the All indications is that there's just nothing but bad blood there. Uh, Jinkies. Did you just say jinkies? (laughs) I did. (laughs) You are such a fucking Velma. Oh, my God. I, we all know that I'm a Velma. I think I was a Scrappy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're kind of a Scrappy. All right, now back to Anthony. Yes, 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 yes. All right. His sister described him as, quote, always a mean child, very aggressive all the time. Ooh. Yeah, not not a good starting point for Mr. Anthony. No. Um. She also said that she was convinced or... He was convinced that his mother didn't love him. Interesting. Yeah. But she didn't quite understand why no one in his family understood why this was. He actually got some special treatment that we'll go into a little bit later. His sister actually said that she feels like Anthony didn't love his mother or anyone else for that matter. That's really interesting. It makes you wonder, like, I mean... 
I think especially in multi-sibling families, there's always a kid that feels like, oh, the other one's the favorite or so-and-so's the favorite. But to full-on feel like your mother doesn't love you yeah, or to not be capable of loving your own mother, that's an interesting psychological profile already. Yeah, and he's like eight at this point. Wow. Um, so when he was around eight years old, one of his aunts died of chronic health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had seven nieces and nephews move into the home. Interesting. So it's Anthony, his brother, his sister, his mother, his grandmother, and seven nieces and nephews. Okay, so his mom's nieces and nephews, his cousins? Yes, his cousins. Okay. So that's 12 people in the home. Wow. And like, it's a relatively sizable home, but that's 12 people. Yeah, I mean, I'm still picturing, like, a family home. And yeah. 12 people in a house, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot in any home. And all that you have is a mother and a grandmother mm. kind of to take care of all of these children. And then it kind of get, it gets dark really fast in this crowded home. Oh, God. According to the surviving family members, the ones that have been willing to um, kind of be interviewed regarding Anthony... They said that the abuse began almost immediately as soon as they moved into the home. Aww. Now, what's interesting is Anthony, his brother and sister, were spared from most of the abuse. Interesting. Yeah. His cousin reported that Anthony would do things intentionally to get other people in trouble. Oh, boy. So he would do things like starting a fight with one of his cousins, drinking from his grandmother's Pepsi stealing things around the house to have the other children be abused. Good Lord. So he was really aggressive and also shifty. I mean, sneaky and conniving. Yeah, he was kind of real dark from an early age. And when we talk about abuse, we're not just saying like they would get spanked or they'd get yelled at. Hmm. According to... The cousins, his mother, her name was Claudia, would force the children to strip naked, tie them to poles or banisters, and whip them with electrical cords. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They said that this had occurred almost daily. Do you know, are they all in the, about the same age bracket as Anthony at this point? Um, well, there's I mean, seven. There's seven of them. So there's, there's got to be an age spread. Simple. Yeah, yeah. There's a pretty wide age spread, but I know that there were at least some of them that were pretty similar in age to him. Mm. One of the documentaries that I used for this was called Unseen: The Story of the Cleveland Strangler. Mm. And so his cousin Darnell was in that, and he kind of just testified to the abuse that was in the house. And when he's kind of talking about the way that they were abused and the things that happened to them, the producer, the narrator, whoever was kind of interviewing him asked, you know, well, why were you being abused? Kind of like what ah. triggered it? I know. Okay. I know. I, it, it's such a gross follow up question. And this is why I'm a psychologist and not, <laughs> not a journalist, because <laughs> I don't think I could ever ask that. Like, well, why do you think you were abused? But, yeah, it's super gross. But But I think he was trying to get, like, the information of what triggered it. Was it, you know, when you guys were fighting or whatever? But his response was, I have no idea. I didn't ask. Wow. 
He went on to say that his scars are still so bad to this day that he can't wear shorts because of all the scarring on his legs. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And he's got to be his 50s or 60s now? No, older than that. Yeah, 60s, 70s if he's about the same age as Sal. Yeah. So to still have scarring 50, 60 years later, that's that's crazy. Wow. So was the mom mostly the perpetrator of the abuse or was grandma involved too? Grandma was reportedly involved too in the abuse. Oh, wow. Yeah. Darnell ran away from home, he said, at age 13 Mm -hmm. and asked to be placed in foster care. Wow. Yeah. Like that is a level of abuse to request foster care. Yeah. In the 50s. Yeah. Like 50s, maybe the early 60s at that point. Yeah. But another one of the cousins, Leona, said that she once ran away and was returned home by the police. And when she was returned home, she said that she was beaten until she bled. Oh. And what she was beaten with was a high heel shoe. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That is like all the force of like an adult woman on like a tiny like one inch yeah bit square point god um she stated that she started setting fires Hmm. like started committing arsons until she got caught just so that she could be sent to do to a juvenile facility wow i mean and it's not a surprise at all to be thinking this way but like how many kids are experiencing the juvenile justice system because of a horrific home situation that they needed to find a way out of, be that like consciously or subconsciously, you know? I know. And I think about that all the time when I see kids in like the juvenile facilities, like how bad is it? Yeah. Like that this is your preferred place because working with some of those kids, that's not, sadly, is not a really rare story. No, it can't Um, be. Yeah. But what she said kind of in response, she was again in the Unseen documentary. She said, there I was locked up and nobody would hurt me. Ugh. The sad part is that Leona probably made a smart move Mm. because of kind of what went on to happen in the house and kind of how the abuse escalated beyond his mother and his grandmother. Oh. So again, Sawa was never abused. Um, what he would he would do instead was he would hide behind doors and watch his family members be abused. Ah, uh. it did not take long before Anthony started abusing his cousins himself. Oh God! And like at the invite of his mom. It doesn't sound like it was an invite. It doesn't sound like it was like mom said, "Hey, come here and abuse them." It was just he kind of looked around, saw what was happening, and was like, oh, I can do whatever I want to them. They're not human. Wow. Yeah. So at this time, when his cousin was around 11, Anthony forced her up to his bedroom and raped her under the threat of violence. Oh, my God. As a preteen. As a preteen. So he was probably 11, 12, because he was around the same age. Jeez. Yeah. Because that became such a regular occurrence, other family members started doing the same thing. Mm. Other kids in the home started doing the same thing and abusing her in the same way. Wow, this poor woman. She must be such a strong person to be able to talk about this stuff publicly at all. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna revisit the family members when we talk about the trial. 
Okay. But yeah, they are they are hella strong. There are so many people in the story that are just crazy strong and just I really do admire them. Good. And to be completely honest, there were other people that came through the house that started abusing this other girl as well in the family. Ugh. Leona, the one that had ran away and got herself into juvie, um, when she was in the house, she said she was aware of the one family member being raped and she tried to call the police, but the police didn't believe her. Oh my God. She was quoted in the documentary as saying, I don't think the Imperial Avenue killings would have ever happened if somebody would have just listened to me. Wow. So that's going to be a refrain that we're going to hear over and over and over again in this case. And there's got to be just almost no way that's not true. Like, I don't know what's going to happen here, but like that can't not be true in some way or another. Like she is there are probably at least five other people that say similar things in this case. Jeez. Mm -hmm. But right now, as it stands, when Anthony is still young, while there was all this terror and torment going on at home, the rest of the community said that they never saw him as violent or aggressive whatsoever. Interesting. He was described as polite and respectful. The neighbor described him as the, quote, kindest child you would ever want to deal with. He was always very respectful. Hmm. Sounds like a smooth operator to me. Smooth. Teachers liked him. I have too many teachers in my life in this one. Just yeah, me. tell me why the teachers liked this little shit. <laughs> teachers liked him because they said he was quiet, he would always look you in the eye, and he was always answer questions when asked. <laughs> Can we try to set the bar just a little bit lower? <laughs> Please. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate it when they just like look in my general direction when I'm delivering content. It makes me feel really effective as an educator. Uh, but apparently so it seemed like all of the adults the neighbors the teachers and all of that really liked little anthony Mm. um but apparently he did get teased quite a lot in school Mm. like he tried to kind of present himself a lot tougher than he actually was interesting um a a schoolmate is quoted in one of the articles from uh the cleveland plane dealer which i love they're dealing it plain that's a good one. We have to put up a compendium of like our favorite Midwestern newspaper titles at some point. I really, really want to. <laughs> anyway, his classmate was quoted as saying, he tried to talk the bitches and hoes kind of talk, but it wasn't really part of him. A cat threw the ball at him and Anthony got so mad. He caught the ball in his stomach. He took the ball and whipped it at the guy. The guy could eat Anthony for breakfast and would have, except another guy stepped in. So... Anthony is kind of, at this point in his life, a gangly motherfucker. Mm. Like, really can't stand up for himself, but really kind of wishes that he could. Interesting, though, to see how quickly he goes into, like, a rage, though. Like, Oh, yeah. That's kind of interesting. Like, kind of a very little thing and tries to, like, be all tough and act all cool. Well, not even really cool, but just tries to, you know. Bitches and hoes. He tries to talk to bitches and hoes. Um, but he's not the bitches and hoes kind of guy. Yeah. Eh. Which usually I appreciate in a person, but I have a sense I'm not going to appreciate it in this guy. No, I don't think you're going to appreciate him. I mean, I do wonder, as we're going to get into, a lot of serial killers Mm 
you know, are able to have that kind of charming sense of self and kind of put it off. Like even when we talked, when we saw the Ypsilanti Ripper, Mm -hmm. you know, I always wonder myself, like, could he charm me? Could he pass muster? Yeah. And, you know, he had actually very similar characteristics as far as being able to kind of schmooze and charisma and all that. But a lot of the people, the girls that he dated would later kind of look back and say that he had like a hairpin trigger though. Like his temper was just so short and it would be like, he's the nicest guy in the world. And then you say the wrong thing that you couldn't have possibly seen coming. And all of a sudden he's just like seeing red. Yep. Exactly the same as Bundy. Like Mm -hmm. you, you say just like one word or whatever out of place and he loses it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that charisma and that like uniqueness, nerve and talent. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) All right. Sorry. All right. Um, So anyway, he ended up dropping out of school because he didn't have enough credits to graduate. What he decided to do instead was to join the Marines. Okay. But had a little fun before he joined the Marines. Oh, no. And in 1978, so at age 19, he found out the day before he left for the Marines that he got a girl pregnant. Oh, boy. And just kind of like, peace out. Good luck to you. I'm never going to talk to you again. Jeez. Yeah. Scumbag. Fucking scumbag. Ugh. Neither he nor his daughter have ever spoken about him. There were no mentions of them in the article. And the way I see it, it is not my job to track that shit down. Let them live in peace. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a reason that they're not featured. So exactly. Let it be. Like I said, at age 19, he entered the Marine Corps. He started to train as an electrician, hoping to gain a skill that he could use outside of the army that he could bring back to Cleveland. He was assigned to the 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing and served in various air stations over the next seven years. He apparently did oddly well. Like, weirdly good behavior in the Marines. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, he did well in school behaviorally, but not academically, and he's doing well in the Marines. So... He's thriving in, like, very compliance-driven atmospheres. Oh, man. Like, you got to think, like, the Marines, wholly compliance-driven. Yeah. Wholly, yeah. like, give up everything about yourself and just listen to what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. And school, too. I mean, aside from academics, it's really just about, like, how well do you adhere to a system? How well do you adhere to these rules, this basic mm-hmm. code of conduct? It requires no executive functioning to just fall in line. To fall in line. Yeah. 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 So he needs so that highly structured, super compliance driven environment is where he's thriving. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And he, yeah, and he really, really did thrive. Mm. He received the Good Conduct Medal with one service star, the Sea Service Deployment ribbons, a certificate of commendation, meritorious mast, and mm. two letters of appreciation. And in 1981, he even got married. What? Yeah, to a fellow Marine in civil in a civil ceremony. Wow, interesting. Um, so at this point he's around 21, 22. Mm-hmm. His wife's name was Kim Yvette Lawson. Uh, Kim died in 1998 due to unrelated issues. He didn't kill her. Yay. Um, so what we know about her and their relationship comes from Kim's mother. And according to Kim's mother, 
Kim wanted to marry him because she was worried about his drinking and wanted to help him. Oh, girl, no. Right, girl? No. No. Don't date a project. It apparently was so bad that he went AWOL for two months at one point. Wow. Yeah. But he still won all those awards. Right? Like, how does that make any fucking sense? I feel like he's gotten really lucky with bars set really low. (laughs) That's really sad. Yeah. Like, apparently, if you just, like, don't commit domestic violence and you don't, like, murder people then you're you're fine. <laughs> Actually no, you know what? You're fine even if you commit domestic violence and murder people in the military. Yeah, very um, often you are. Don't yeah. fucking at me. I don't care. So Anthony ended up leaving the Marines. Um actually both him and Yvette ended up leaving the Marines in 1985. And Kim divorced him the fucking day she got out. Ooh, okay, good for her. Hell yeah. So it's 1985. Anthony is out of the military, and he returns to the house on Page Avenue. Now, here is when we get to have a fun conversation about what happened to the Rust Belt post-industrialization. Yes. Yes. I I just saw your face just, like, light up. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like people that don't know the Rust Belt don't totally understand what this means. Yeah, well, let's explain it to them. So between when Anthony was growing up yeah, in the 60s and the 70s and when Anthony came back in the mid-80s, the Cleveland was a completely different world. Yeah. Post-World War II was a huge boom for all the Rust Belt cities. Any of these cities that had centers and huge industries, whether it was steel or glass or auto industry, whatever it was, just had fucking boons of money, dude. Yes, totally. And then, like, so, you know, this really rising, really vibrant middle class and upper middle class and Mm -hmm. booming neighborhoods. Where people were able to actually achieve, like, what we call the American dream, mm-hmm. buy your own home and have all these convenience appliances, like a washing machine and whatnot. Like, it was crazy, and people found some level of equity. Of course, it wasn't full equity, and that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. But there was a sense that I could move up in the world. Yeah. And, like, so, you know, in parallel cities were doing well you know in their own economies so Mm -hmm. you had like vibrant infrastructure and social services and strong arts and culture and you know vibrant thriving you know full-on communities that fully served their constituents yeah like very involved schools and churches and everything that really kind of kept an eye on the neighborhood yeah What happened after industry started moving out of the Rust Belt between deindustrialization, redlining, white flight, all of that, the cities really 180'd, unfortunately. Yeah. Especially cities like Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Pittsburgh were completely unrecognizable. So... Where Anthony grew up being kind of a more integrated, kind of thriving middle-class neighborhood, eventually a full 25% of the city of Cleveland lived below the poverty line. Wow. And it was 90% African-American, 
they lost a lot of industry jobs, a lot of factory work. And so when money leaves a city, that means that social services leave cities. Yep. That includes schools, that includes police, that includes, you know, child protection, although clearly child protection wasn't doing much in Cleveland. Yeah, <laughs> the city became really rife with discrimination and racism from the higher level systems. There became this like super level of apathy toward the community of Cleveland mm-hmm. from the government. So a lot of the a lot of the community where Anthony grew up became these abound- abandoned houses, these crack houses. A lot of addicts became sex workers to support their habit. And there was nowhere to go for help. Yeah. And obviously there's no such thing as systemic racism or anything. Yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. Bootstraps and all that. Yeah. Totes. <laughs> so this is a city that Anthony Sowell's dropped back into. Mm. Drunk, angry, avoiding the fact that he has a seven-year-old child. Mm. He started to have a hard time finding work that he was qualified for because even though he had gained some experience in the military, he was still drinking daily to the point of regularly blacking out. Mm -hmm. Like, start in the morning, go through the day, black out. Yikes. Which makes you not a very reliable worker. No. He was arrested in 1988 for domestic violence. You want to guess how much time he served? None. Eight days. Oh, well, got a, might as well be none. You know, like a, a week, you know. Good Lord. It's like a little vacation, you know. Who was he abusing? A uh, girlfriend. Okay. Yeah, he was kind of casually dating, whatever. Ugh. He also started stacking up a string of other arrests, including disorderly conduct, DUI, public drunkenness, You know, all that fun stuff that makes you, you know, a familiar face to the police if they were to care. Yeah. (laughs) If they were to care. That's, that's hopeful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because that's when the bodies started showing up. Oh, God. Tell me about the bodies. I got to tell you about the bodies. Okay. I'm going to caveat this by saying none of these have been formally attached to Anthony Zowell. Interesting. Okay. But I'm going to list these names and the circumstances, and we can maybe circle back around to them to get your thoughts later. Mm-hmm. All right. So May of 1988, Rosalind Garner is found strangled in her home. Mm. February 1989, Carmela Karen Prater is found dead in an abandoned house. Cause of death is unknown. March 1989, Mary Thomas was found in an abandoned building. Cause of death also unknown. Mm. He was directly linked to the rape of a pregnant woman who was 21 at the time of the rape. I know. Somehow that just makes it. Yeah. Um, However, she didn't come forward until after the Imperial Avenue slangs came. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think she served as a character witness. Hmm. Because of the statute of limitations, she was not able to press charges. Here's where we get into some real shit. Some known shit. Known shit. Known shit. In July 22nd, 1989, he met a woman on the corner of Euclid and Lee. Her name was Melvette Sockwell. I love that name. Melvette is a goddamn hero, okay? Okay, good. We love her. What's the intersection again? Euclid. Euclid and Lee. 
Melvette was a sex worker and a crack cocaine user. He told her that her boyfriend was at his house waiting for her, and he took her over to his house. Um, Mm. This was when he was still living at the Page Avenue home. So when they get to the home, Anthony threw her on the bed, choked her, and raped her at knife point multiple times. Good Lord. When she tried to leave and to run away, he grabbed her, bound her, and tied her with a belt around her neck and stuffed a rag in her mouth. Jesus. After he told her he was going to kill her, after he finished raping her, he fell asleep. Lucky for Melvette, though, when he fell asleep, she was able to wriggle out of the bindings and escape out a window. Good for her, Melvette. Fuck yeah, Melvette. I I love this. Oh my god. So she got out of the bindings, escaped out a window, um, ran onto the roof, bleeding, naked, beaten, and was able to scream and flag down the neighbors to call the police. Holy shit. And that was how she got out of that house. That's unbelievable. The strength of that fucking woman. Seriously, the resolve, the... Wow, yeah, good for her. She's amazing. Fuck yeah. So Anthony was eventually indicted, but he didn't show up for court. Yeah. He just didn't show up. This is what pisses me off, though. So that attack happened in July. He was not issued a warrant, or there was not issued a warrant for his arrest until December 8th. That's, what, six months? No, that's more than... Five months. Good lord. That fucking pisses me off. Yeah, for what reason would there possibly be to wait that long to issue a warrant? Get ready to continue to be pissed off. Mm. In the time, so the warrant was issued on December 8th. That doesn't mean that he was arrested on December 8th. Right. Because in 1990, he found another woman, invited her over for drinks. She said that everything kind of initially started out pretty normally until they ran out of drugs. Oh, boy. And this became his M.O. Like, mm. he is a patterned fucking killer. He is yeah. so uncreative. Once they ran out of drugs, he came up behind her, started choking her and screaming at her. He then dragged her to another room where he raped her, like, every way imaginable. I don't like uh, getting into the details. Yeah. He started saying that, She was his bitch, and she better learn to like it. Ew. He forced her to say, yes, sir, I like it. Oh, my God. What a fucking monster. I mean, I keep coming back to, like, compliance and control. Like, he was thriving in the military. He comes back. His community is in, like, thrust into chaos, Mm -hmm. right? So he's creating situations where he gets to take over control. Mm -hmm. Then it sounds like he gets a little bit too comfortable in that situation, Mm. and falls asleep yeah it but, you know what it's the yes sir i think that bothers me so much yeah no totally totally because it's such a blatant cry for it's such a blatant dominance thing. yeah yeah it's a blatant cry for control and then he fell asleep again this <sighs> i can't even deal with that she's not even bound this time oh So she just fucking runs out the house. Good for her. And she ran directly to the police. Good. Now, luckily, because there was already a warrant out for him, they were able to go directly to his house. 
Oh, okay. So Melvet's warrant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. So these two women, fuck yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, they... Here's what is bothering me at this point, though. Yes. So many things. Um, so I, like, real quick just Googled, like, where is Lee and Euclid? Mm-hmm. And right there is Paige. Yep. And it's, like, a two-block-long street. Oh, yeah. So He does not travel. No, he doesn't. But, like... Not only that, but in a neighborhood where there's a lot of drugs, a lot of sex work, like everybody knows everybody. It has almost like a small town vibe to it. Yeah. So there's no way that... People didn't know who who he is. Yeah. And I mean, he was known to police and we knew that, but like... We know he's a domestic abuser. We know he's a drunk. Yeah. Like these are his police records. Yeah. And even if Melvette didn't know his name, if you said like that dude on Page Avenue... Mm Mm-hmm. It's, t- it's, like, literally three blocks. Like, that's crazy. And for the police to not, like, if he has all of these things, police have full reason to go arrest him on Melvet's warrant. Yeah. But they waited for another woman to get attacked. That's unbelievable. The police show are at his house by 8 a.m. the next morning after this woman escapes. <sighs> so Anthony is charged for Melvet's attack. On September 12th, 1990, he pleaded guilty to attempted rape and sentenced to 15 years. Hmm. Right? 15 years for an attempt. I don't know why it's an attempted rape, but whatever. Yeah. 15 years is actually pretty good, though, especially for the, like, 1990. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So he served 15 years at the the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections in Lorraine. So he was there until 2005. You want to take a guess at what he was doing for those 15 years? Hammering license plates. <laughs> singing jail songs. You know what? He was actually being productive. Really? Yeah. He attended AA and ACOA, which is the Adult Children of Alcoholics. Oh, good. So he attended those meetings, claiming that he was getting treatment and getting better. Mm. But the boy seemed to keep getting stuck on step five. Do you know anything about step work? A little. Is step five where you have to kind of take inventory of the shit that you've done? Or is that a different one? Step four is taking a fearless moral inventory. Step five is we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Ah. (sighs) And he just kept getting stuck. Mm. because he would never admit that he was a sexual predator. Wow. Yeah. He was offered sex offender treatment, Mm. but according to an inmate that served with him, Anthony said, I want nobody knowing my business. Interesting. Yeah. So fuck you, we're talking about your business. I wonder if there was like a a self-denial that went into it too. I feel like there's a self-denial. Yeah. You know, from an early age, he was taught that certain people aren't human and certain people don't deserve any kind of humane treatment. Yeah. People are there for you. It's sick and sad, but it makes sense with his childhood. Yeah. Like, he's never taught to not abuse people. No. And he had no example. None whatsoever. But he also took uh, some other lovely courses. I want to get your reaction on these. Oh, I can't wait. He took some very nice courses through the prison. 
mm-hmm. including Living Without Violence, Ooh. Cage Your Rage, Ooh. and my personal favorite, Positive Personal Change. Aww. Yeah. It feels like he was doing like a little yoga, a little crystal meditation. Okay, this is now starting to feel a little bit pointed. <laughs> I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's so interesting because, I mean, well, you know, it's interesting to me, but it it makes 100% sense that those courses would be an effective part of, Mm -hmm. like, inmate life. Oh, yeah. But to what degree did he ever take them seriously? Oh, yeah. I wonder about that. I don't think you can judge the effectiveness of an outcome based on people like Anthony. I am a statistics nerd. Yes. And there is a reason why we control for extreme outliers. You have to. It also makes me wonder, like, how useful is living a violence-free life when you can't admit to being a sexual predator? Like, that's the base point of his violence. Yeah, exactly. So he also, in prison, was able to earn his GED and give up drugs and alcohol, which is great, right? Yeah, seriously. Um, He started doing work as an electrician. He worked in the kitchen. It seemed like the guards and the people in power all had very good things to say about him. Compliance. Okay. He had no major infractions in the 15 years, and he was declared by the prison psychiatrist low risk for sexual violence and Mm. unlikely to rape again. I have a sense that that guy probably regrets saying that. I really hope he does. Because other inmates thought very differently of him. Oh, interesting. A fellow inmate that served with him was quoted as saying, I shunned him because not only was he a demented and psychotic pervert, oh my- he carried... Not only, <laughs> but also... He carried the stigma of a convicted rapist, which we all know, convicted rapists in prison. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I want you to keep that in mind. Okay. Demented and psychotic pervert. Okay, it's in there. It's in there. He got a glowing psych review from the prison psychiatrist Mm. and was released with very minimal oversight. Interesting. He had to register as a sex offender after he left prison in 2005, which required a big old one check-in per year. Fantastic. I love where this is going. He rented out a space in his stepmo- in his stepmother's home at 12205 Imperial Avenue. Hmm. It was a duplex, so I believe that his stepmother lived in one of the levels and he lived in another level. Interesting. He started in a career program. He did some factory work. He was able to get a job in a rubber factory. His boss said that he was, quote, a very good employee. Of course he was. There's some interesting stuff I'm going to read to you here about what the other women in the community would say about him. Mm. Okay. So Anthony reportedly liked to, quote, help women at this time. Oh, God. Now, in 2005, the crack epidemic was still rolling in Cleveland. Yeah. People like to think about that as an 80s thing. It never really went away in Cleveland and a lot of other areas of the country. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, no. And the city really still had not recovered economically or socially. It was still very segregated, still very impoverished. There are parts of Cleveland that are really rough to go into. 
to this day. And Sal really took advantage of this. Mm. Like I said, he liked to try to help women, especially the sex workers in the area. Quote, help. Yeah. One of them said that he apparently would offer them malt liquor and companionship and shelter from the dangers of the streets. Interesting. Now, he would do that until they didn't respond exactly how he wanted them to. Of course. Then he would terrorize, attack, and rape them. Ah, well, okay. Yeah, right? Do. Now, mm-hmm. again, you talked about, like, he does everything in a structured setting very, very well. Yeah. Like, he knows how to get by in a structured setting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But once he is back on the streets, he fucking... <sighs> he wants to be in that control. Yeah. All of the control that his mother had over him, that his drill instructors had over him, he wants that. And if people don't fall in line with exactly the way that he would to his mother, his drill instructor, his teachers, whatever, he fucking loses it. Yeah. He also was an online dater. Ooh. Yeah. We love an online dater. Now, this is where I'm going to put out my, like, my warning, Nick's warnings. Mm-hmm. Assume every online date is a serial killer. Uh, you have to. Just you have to. Just assume it. Yeah. Research them online, dig them up, and just assume they're a serial killer. Yep. Tell somebody where you're going every time. Mm-hmm. Try to go to the same place every time. Mm-hmm. The Be- wait staff will start to treat you real nice. I really enjoyed that experience. <laughs> Getting to know wait staff at your first date location. Yeah. <laughs> After a while, they give you this look of like, oh, you again? It's like, yes, unsuccessful. Like, Listen, I'm trying. Yes. I am trying. <laughs> We're in the same outfit every time. Like, you can see I'm trying. All right. Anyway, so just assume your date is a serial killer. Um, know your route home. Text the entire time. Yes. It's not rude, boys. I'm sorry. No, it's not. So I'm going to read, like, some comments of women who dated him. His Yelp and reviews. His Yelp, basically his Yelp reviews. <laughs> so. Creepy fuck. You know what? They, they start off okay, and then they just get weirder and weirder. Mm. So Tanya Doss, one of his ex-girlfriends, this was before he started using crack regularly. Okay? Mm-hmm. She said that he told her that he was in prison for taking the rat for a crime he didn't commit. So he starts off a liar. Mm. But she said, quote, he seemed like a regular human being. He had a little laughter in him. Okay. It's nice. Next is McKay. She met him in 2005. Later, she says he is, quote, not crazy, but strange. Mm. Sort of quiet, mousy, sneaky, sort of. (laughs) Okay. Next one is Lori Frazier. So she dated him for quite a while from 2005 to either 2007 or 2008, depending on who you ask, mm-hmm. who hasn't been in those relationships. I'm sorry. <laughs> this one's interesting because Lori Frazier was the niece of the Cleveland mayor, Frank Jackson. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. So there was all kinds of scandal when he finally got caught. Oh, I bet. She lived with him for a while in the Imperial Avenue house, which we're going to talk about. Mm. She said that he took good care of me, but she also said that the house kind of smelled bad. <gasps> like John Gain Wacy house smell bad? I don't know. We'll get to it. 
She eventually moved to New York in 2006, but would come back and visit and stay with him. Mm. And then 2007 is when, according to people, things started to unravel. He was apparently, okay, I'm going to read this part to put it out there because it's a fucking shit take that people have. So I'm going to put this shit take out there and then I'm going to throw it away. Okay. Okay. He was apparently still hung up on Frasier after they broke up. Hmm. And that's when he started to kind of go off the wall. Interesting. Yeah. I fucking hate that. It's like, yeah. oh, this breakup, this girl made me go crazy and become a serial killer. Like, no, oh, yeah. she didn't. It's, it's your you. fault that I'm like this. It's your fault I'm like this. No, mm-hmm. fuck you. You were clearly like a terrible human being before Absolutely. she broke up with you. Yeah. Probably she had good reason to break up with you. Probably. But it was in 2007 after they broke up that he stopped showing up from work and he eventually got fired. Um, And he ended up collecting scrap metal, collecting and selling scrap metal in his neighborhood and collecting unemployment. Okay. Now, I say this because you know the scrappers in your neighborhood, right? Yes. Like, you don't know them on a personal level, but like. Right, but you know who they are when you see them. Yeah. When I see the truck coming down my, like, alley, I'm like, okay, they're coming. Like. If I'm headed for work, I need to get my fucking, like, car out of the way right now. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Totally. They're known in the neighborhood. And they're known by, like, other scrappers where you turn the shit in. Whatever. He's a fucking known face throughout this neighborhood. Yeah. Okay? Because we're about to get into his actual murders. Okay. So we're in mid-2007 right now. Mm-hmm. His first official known murder victim is Crystal Dozier. Mm-hmm. Crystal went missing shortly after Mother's Day. We know this because her son, so he had kind of a a little bit of a tumultuous relationship with his mom, with Crystal. Mm-hmm. And he said that he intentionally didn't call her on Mother's Day. But he reached out a few days later um, and couldn't get a hold of her. He tried several times, and after a few weeks, he eventually went to the police. Wow. Not only did he go to the police, Crystal's sister and Crystal's mother also all went to the police to report her disappearance. Wow. And nothing was done. Ugh. The family ended up putting flyers and doing searches of their own, just like searching the community, trying to figure out what was she doing? Was she arrested? Was she institutionalized? Like, they know that this is a woman that's struggling with substance abuse. And they just want to have some kind of answers. Yeah. Oh, man. I have a rant. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Tell me. Tell me, girl. Okay. So, you know, obviously there's a lot going on right now culturally with the police and um, how people view the police and the, you know, public eye and everything. And uh, I would say that here at Mid Wretched, we are staunch Black Lives Matter supporters. Fuck yes, we are. Absolutely, for sure. And so one of the things that's come up lately in this argument about defunding the police is like, I've heard more than one person say, well, you know, if you want to defund the police, why don't you go ahead and do the job yourself? And it's like, you know what, though, in so many communities, people have to because oh, yeah. police don't take them seriously. Oh, yeah, and they do. That case in point, like her family had to take matters into their own hands because the police did not have her back. Oh, yeah. And she's not the only woman in this story that had to yeah. do that. And no, it. I feel that so hard of people just being like, well, the police ignored me, so I have to do something. Yeah. 
it fucking kills me. Yeah. Like there there's a low homicide like <sighs> conviction rate. There's that stat that only three to eight percent of rapists that report ever or that get reported ever see any jail time. Yeah. Um so Crystal's family never get any answers from the police. Mm. And she is just the first of many victims. Jeez. And here's the thing is I don't have I know here at Midwretched we really believe in telling all the victim stories. Yeah. We don't have the stories of all the victims of yeah. Anthony Sowell because the police didn't investigate them. They weren't reported. It's not like there was this big manhunt where we know everybody's story. Mm-hmm. We have names of his victims, and I will read those once we get through a lot of this stuff. But it it breaks my heart to not know more about them. Yeah. We'll put pictures up of them on our Instagram mm-hmm. so that you can know who all of them are and see their beautiful shining faces. I'm going to keep on kind of telling you because... His survivors are just as important. Yeah, totally. His survivors are fucking badasses, and I love yeah. them so much. Oh, yes. Tell me more. You know how Lori Frazier, the ex-girlfriend, said that his house was smelly? A few weeks after Crystal Dozer's disappearance, a neighbor of Sowell's called the city council to report a bad smell in the area. Hmm. Now, everybody around the area blamed the sausage shop that was next door to Sowell's home. Interesting. Uh-huh. And I started to feel really bad for the shop owner because he kept getting cited. Like, everybody just assumed that the smell was the sausage factory. And it's Aww. totally believable. Yeah, for sure. Why wouldn't you think that? As somebody who cooks a lot of sausage and a lot of cabbage... <laughs> But I started to feel bad for him because he was getting like all of these citations. He was making thousands of dollars in upgrades to their facilities to try to address the smell. Well, you know what? He has a 4.9 out of 5 stars on Google reviews. Are you fucking serious? Yeah. Hell yeah. So he's, I mean, and they're recent reviews. So he's doing a good job. I'm proud of him. He, he recovered. Over the next two years, Sowell just kind of escalated in his perpetrating. But he had the same M.O., He would invite women over for alcohol and drugs. The second they were over with, he would start to assault them, rape them, and eventually kill them. Good Lord. He had 10 more victims over the next two years. Wow, that's a lot. 10 more murders over the next two years, I should say. Mm. Because there were additional victims that we're going to get into who were able to survive and get out. The first one that we're going to talk about is Gladys Wade. She was a victim in either 2008 or 2009. The reporting of this case is fucking terrible. Mm. And for it being so recent, too. Uh, we're going to get to how little people fucking cared about these women. And I hate it. Yeah. Same MO. He invites her over for drinks. The drinks and the drugs run out. He assaults her. And when he falls asleep, like he does. Fucking insanity. Right. She was able to run out of the house and run across the street to a local restaurant. Oh, good for her. She runs to this restaurant, still bleeding, obviously traumatized, obviously abused, and asked to call the cops. Wow. They told her no. (gasps) 
And they kicked her out, quote, because I was bleeding on the floor. Oh, my God. That poor woman. I have a lot of quotes from these women because I feel like they deserve to be fucking heard. And I can't. I can't believe some of the things that they fucking said. Yeah. And I'm really just like trying not to interject anymore because I want you to be be able to just tell their stories, you know. She was eventually able to track down a phone and call the police. Um, And she said, they told me it was his word against mine. Mm. The police report cited her as not credible and they cited the accusation as unfounded. Wow. I want you to put that on a shelf because it's going to play a big role later. Okay, got it. Because Anthony went on to kill six more women after she reported him. And the Cleveland police get in hella fucking trouble because of that. Good. The next survivor that we have is Vanessa Gay. Now, she is important because she's the only witness to the actual bodies. Oh, interesting. Okay. She was picked up in the same way, taken to Anthony's house. Um, same MO. Um, she was picked up again just around the fucking corner. We're gonna put up a map on our Instagram to show where these women were picked up from and where they lived. And you're gonna see it is within a five block radius of his house. That's unbelievable. Like he clearly had to be known within the community. Oh yeah. I can't believe that there weren't rumors about who he was, that there wasn't like, don't go to that guy's house. Yeah, seriously. I, I can't believe that. So he picked her up, again, promising her drugs and alcohol, took her to the home where she was beaten and raped, quote, for hours and hours and hours. Mm. And then this kind of struck me as odd, but he allowed her to go to the bathroom eventually interesting. yeah um he feels he, obviously very comfortable in his own space yeah right but anyway he allowed her to go to the bathroom and she describes walking down the hallway and glancing through one of the doors in the hallway and seeing one of the bodies oh my god and she said that she just froze and all that went through her head was, I'm not supposed to make it out of here. Wow. And I can't imagine what it's like to have that thought in your head. No. But she was shockingly able to just keep a straight face. Mm. Keep her cool. And this just, this blows me away what she did next. She returned to the room where he was abusing her. And he apparently kept saying, if she she can't leave, because if she left, she would tell. If you leave, you'll tell. If you leave, you'll tell. And she responds and kind of looks at him and says, well, what's there to tell? It was just a little rough. Oh, my gosh. That is so smart. I I can't imagine. No, like, yeah, how do you yeah. even? Yeah. Yeah. She's so collected and so strategic in the midst of that that's unbelievable that's so smart like the emotional strength that it takes to collect yourself and able to do that yeah oh my i i i praise this woman like yeah hell yeah that's amazing that's a fucking survivor yeah he walked her out the house 
Wow. She walked arm in arm with him to the front door. Wow. So he picked her up on a Saturday night and allowed her to leave on a Sunday morning. So, okay. yeah. So think about it. Sunday morning, community, there's people leaving church, there's people running errands, there's people on the street. Yeah. She said she heard people coming out of church, walking through the neighborhood. She was clearly visibly hurt, but she said, nobody would help me. Wow. Nobody would even stop in their tracks to ask me if I was okay. That is so tragic and such a huge part of the story. That's... Yeah. 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 She eventually, she called the police when she got home and they told her that she would have to go to the police station to make a report. And what she describes in the documentary was she had this huge fear that she wasn't going to be believed. Yeah. And she has no reason not to think that at this point. I mean, look at all of the other women who have reported. Yeah. Like, even Melvette, who they eventually acted on, they took five months to do it. Um, But she said, I was on crack. I knew they were just going to say I was crazy. Yeah. Just, again, feeling like she deserved it. And I think that was also part of why she didn't feel like she should go to the police. Like, that's what I get kind of attitude. And... When the reality is, is, girl, you are so fucking strong. Hell yeah, she is. And so worth all of it. I mean. So we're going to get to our final survivor. Um, LaTundra or Lala Phillips, who has a beautiful name too. So Mm -hmm. cute. Um, So she had actually been to the house a few times before. She had been there socially and with other groups of people. And she had asked him why they couldn't go upstairs. And he would just always tell her, oh, well, it's dirty up there. It's interesting that he's, like, comfortable enough to throw parties. Again, like, he's got a really, he's so comfortable in his own space, but, like, nowhere else. In the stinky dead body house. Yeah. But it's his. It's his, I guess. It's not even his. It's its stepmother's. Yeah. That's interesting, too. And she's just like, do-do-do, stinky dead bodies, whatever. I think she eventually died or moved out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. So Lala goes over there. They have drinks. They did drugs. Um, And then again, same fucking M.O. Soon as they're done, he grabs her by the neck and drags her upstairs. Hmm. She tried to push him away. He hit her um, and dragged her into a different room. He threw her on the floor and raped her. And he continued to beat her until she eventually passed out. So she passed out, but this part is the kind of, like, it just, she woke up. She said when she woke up, quote, I saw his eyes bulge out because he was shocked I woke up. Oh, wow. So he basically had left her there for dead. He thought she was dead. And I wonder if his repeatedly falling asleep, if that's what it was, he thought he had killed all of these women. Yeah. And he stays in the room. That's interesting. Right? Yeah. He stays in the room to fall asleep over their dead bodies. Do we know anything about necrophilia in this one? There's no evidence of necrophilia. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting when they share space. Like, and you, that it seems like that's kind of like a mm-hmm. something that's happening here. Like, he's not 
he's not dumping them somewhere. He's not he's not himself going somewhere else. He's yeah. okay sharing the space. Yeah, it's I say there's no evidence of necrophilia. We can talk all day about how little I trust the Cleveland Police Department's investigation of this case. Yeah, and there's no evidence of not necrophilia. Yeah. Because the bodies were just strewn about the house. Interesting. And like he kept them there. Like I said, he like you mentioned, he didn't try to get rid of anything. He didn't try to really hide anything. It's so odd to me. Yeah, not hiding anything. Like you see that like shades of that fairly often with like even Ypsilanti Ripper, like he put them in places that they would be found. Mm-hmm. But sharing the space living that with seems that. like that puts it in a different category yeah i mean he tr- he tried to bury some of them because they had found some of them in the backyard mm. but eventually they just kind of like it was in a room that is incredibly interesting and yeah interesting. so she woke up he woke up and lala said I saw his eyes, bul- his eyes bulge because he was shocked I woke up. And he initially freaked out. He had clearly thought he would kill he had killed her and was ready to sleep. <sighs> now, Lala is as clever as fucking Vanessa was, right? Yeah. I mean, really, like this is the story of Anthony Sowell, but more than that, it's the story of the smart, incredibly tough, strong women. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. like it's their story like these are the women that really fucking like deserve all of the credit in this yeah like these women caught a serial killer the police didn't yeah um and that's why i said like there was no manhunt for him <laughs> so interesting and so tragic and again like with it being so recent too mm-hmm. no news either i mean i remember seeing it at the end of the whole case but you don't see you know, missing woman out of Cleveland, da 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 da, and then body found, da 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 da. Like eleven black women missing out of Cleveland. Yeah. Nobody reports that. No, they don't. And this was, you had mentioned this was when we were in college, yeah, in Detroit, same region. Oh yeah, we would have, if it had been on the news or in the paper, we would have known about it. Initially, Anthony freaked out. He thought he had killed her. But Lala is able to keep her cool, just like Vanessa had. She said she wasn't going to go to the police. She eventually kind of played it off in that way of like, oh, you know, you get a little high, crazy stuff happens. No biggie. Right? I love that. And so if we think about like, these women are placating him. Yeah. They're behaving in the way that he wants them to. Yeah. They're behaving, quote unquote, properly for Anthony. Yeah. And that's what he wants because he's obsessed with compliance and control. Mm-hmm. He allowed her to calmly walk out of the house. And so she walked out the front door, walked down the sidewalk. And then as soon as she hit that fucking first turn, she fucking booked it to the police. Good. She went right to the police and made a report and went right to the hospital where they collected evidence. Oh, thank God. <sighs> You want to take a guess at how long the Cleveland police took to answer that call? Oh, boy. Please don't tell me it was like six months. Three weeks. Uh, 
The police took three weeks to contact her after she made the report. Wow. Finally, on October 29th, 2009, the police finally went to the Imperial Avenue home. Anthony was at home. Okay. But they just went in the house. Interesting. Boy, what awaits them in there? Good lord. They go into the home and they immediately find two decomposing bodies. Good lord. Fucking right. And then they just start excavating the entire house. Mm. Meanwhile, Anthony still has not been found. Apparently, he was like walking down the street and he saw them going into the home. Interesting. He went to his sister's house and watched the news and watched them excavating the home and discovering the bodies. Wow. And I think he freaked out on his sister. I'm still not totally clear on how this like exchange happened. But I guess he told his sister, I don't know why I did it. I just spazzed out. She made me do it. Blah, blah, blah. And then he just like ran out and hid in an abandoned house. Interesting. Yeah. I don't. Whatever. He flipped out. He's not very smart. Um, because his sister fucking turned it in, turned him in. Interesting. Like fucking immediately. She's like, yeah, you're gross. Yeah. I'm going to turn you in. I'm really curious about the psych take on this one in general. Uh, uh, I want to write a book. Do it. About how much I hate that question. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe don't do it. I'm going to do it one day. Dedicate it to me. I dedicate it to every true crime podcaster. Oh. Um, but especially me, though. But espe- I mean, I'll dedicate everything to you. Didn't you dedicate your dissertation to me? Probably. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah, I think you did. Yeah. You're my love. Aw. Aw. Anyway, so then they found the bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Any <who's all. laughs> His sister turned him into the cops immediately. Or she reported he was here and then he ran off. He's probably somewhere in the neighborhood because he doesn't go anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and they did find him within the week. Oh, he's cool. he's not a good hider. No. So they did find 11 bodies that were all eventually identified with DNA because they were so decomposed. Wow. I'm going to read you the name of the of the identified women. And then again, like I said, we're going to put their pictures up on our Instagram. And Facebook. So the women that they found were Imelda Hunter. Diane Turner, LaShonda Long, Michelle Mason, Nancy Cobbs, Janice Webb, Tashana Culver, Talasia Fortson, Tanya Carmichael, Kim Smith, and Crystal Dozier. Oh, they found Crystal. They found Crystal. So while they were excavating the house, the people of Cleveland, and especially of East Cleveland... Um, they knew that their mothers and sisters and friends were missing. Yeah. Families were just showing up on the street with missing posters. Wow. And they were just posting them on fences and just circling women as they were identified. Oh, my gosh. The community was... I got the sense that... They were at the same time, like, sad and grieving, but they were so fucking angry. Yeah. Yeah. That just nobody has done this. Why were our people missing? 
Why did so many of our women, why were they not taken care of? And if they had, if there was investigation about even a couple of them, Mm -hmm. the degree to which this escalated wouldn't exist. It's too tight a radius. Mm -hmm. It's too tight a profile. Like if any of that had been chased down in the beginning, it wouldn't have happened. If anyone had cared to investigate those early reports, this would not have happened. No. The Cleveland police go on to kind of defend themselves by saying, oh, these women didn't follow up, blah, 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 blah. But like. Should they really have to follow up that much, though? How much work do you want them to do when you're the police? Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a moral question, I guess, in some ways, like, where's the responsibility? But yeah, at the end of the day, like a violent crime happened. Several violent crimes happened. Yeah. Yeah. He was eventually charged with 85 counts. Oh, my God. Uh, including rape, attempted rape, and murder. Wow. He initially tried to plead guilty. That got him absolutely fucking nowhere. As it fucking should. Like, you clearly know that what you're doing is wrong. Yeah. Fuck you. A lot of the survivors testified. A lot of the family testified against him. Um, his cousins were all questioned about their upbringing, and they did not hold back a bit. Good. They were asked if they had been abused, if they had ever used drugs, alcohol, and criminal records, if they had ever abused their own children or anyone else. Mm. They all answered no. Darnell had answered why you know they asked him again you know why he said i know the difference between right and wrong and leona said i don't want to continue the cycle lala our last survivor has gone on to earn her master's degree in social work oh that's awesome funded in large part by the massive settlement that she got from the city of cleveland we'll talk about that in a minute good for her A lot of the other ones obviously struggled to cope. There was a lot of stuff going on, and the trauma that they experienced from Anthony only ever compounded that. Yeah. I don't know where else to talk about this, but just to give you a sense of what was going on in the fucking neighborhood and all the bullshit. In one of the documentaries, there's a store owner who owns Imperial Liquors, which is right across the street from Anthony's home. And they interview him about, like, seeing Anthony throughout the years and, like, oh, how did he change, this, that, the other, blah, blah, blah. And what do you think about the killings? This fucking shop owner said, I wish we had a million Anthony Sowells. He cleaned up the garbage. Oh, my God. What a piece of shit. The producer's like, uh, what do you mean by that? And he says, the ones he chose. Those were garbage. Wow. Wow. And that was really the sense of, like, this community. And I feel like, although that liquor store owner is a piece of fucking shit, and he was the only one to say that out loud, I feel like a lot of the systems thought that but would never say it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And a lot of, I mean, there's a a billion serial killers that choose, not a billion, but, you know, prostitutes, and they, they go after women in a specific line of work and that you know live in specific places and they do that for a reason because the quote less dead yeah Yeah. people yeah it's like you're less dead because you're less worth it or something like that which is obviously abominable but yeah it's what they do you know and that is like a culturally enforced idea Mm -hmm. 
and it's it's fucking disgusting yeah and then you Uh, compound it with the race issues in this case and yeah 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 um vanessa was asked why she thinks that the police didn't act on it or pursue it any further she says i don't think that they wanted to see it Mm. wade and billups filed a lawsuit against the city for not investigating their reports they cited that their neglect and failure to follow up allowed for the deaths of six more women, which it fucking did. Yeah. But those were the only two women. Many of the other community members came forward citing poor treatment by the police. Barbara Carmichael, who was another woman in the community, said when she tried to report sexual assaults, quote, they belittled it and made jokes. Ugh. One of the mothers of the victims um, talked about when she tried to report her daughter missing. She said, they told me to wait a while because she would return once the drugs were all gone. Mm. Another, Michelle Mason, one of the victims, her mother said, the police are still in the mindset that some people don't matter. Shouldn't the police have noticed when we had so many black women missing before this? The law enforcement, again, denied this, but records show that they failed to check leads. They didn't follow up or look up appropriate information. They insisted that they only investigate missing adults if there's a suspicion of foul play, which they denied that they had. (sighs) However, there were a bunch of fucking settlements in this case. Good. Both Gladys and Lala made a report basically about the lack of action on the police department's part, that they failed to review the appropriate evidence and didn't report the background checks appropriately. So Anthony was eventually convicted on 84 of the 85 counts. I don't fucking know which one he was cleared of. Interesting. Okay. Right. I know, but. I fucking want to know. He was sentenced to death. He has since filed an appeal stating that he didn't have adequate legal representation, but fuck you, buddy. It's not like you helped yourself a lot. Right. <laughs> uh so this was just the first black mark of many to hit the city of Cleveland. The city ended up paying out millions to re- what really boils down to systemic bias and poor police practices. Of those include the million dollar payouts to the families of the six women murdered after Gladys's reports. Wow. So all of the six women were basically paid out by the Cleveland Police Department because it's their fucking fault. Yeah, it is. There was $2,500 paid to Crystal's family for failing to investigate their missing persons report, mm. which kind of just pisses me the fuck off. Yeah. $2,500 fucking dollars. Yeah, that's nothing. No, it. I fucking hate it. No, yeah, that's really depressing. So there was also an undisclosed amount released to Gladys Wade and Lala Billups specifically. Mm for lack of action, lack of proper investigation. Interesting. But it just fucking goes on. Like, this was just the start of some bullshit in the Cleveland Police Department. Quickly following this case was a $6 million payout to Tamir Rice's family. Do you remember the Tamir Rice case? Oh, of course I do. Yeah. If any of our listeners don't remember it, 12-year-old boy playing with a um, an airsoft gun in his front yard, killed by the police. Yeah. There was then a $3 million payout to the families of Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams. 
two homeless men who were killed in their cars after the police fired 137 shots. Oh, my God. And that was, they were found responsible of dereliction of duty. Interesting. And that was a case I had, I did not fucking know, but essentially a plainclothes police officer tried to pull them over for not signaling a turn. Hmm. And that fucking resulted in 137 shots into their car. Because that makes sense. Because that fucking makes sense, right? Yeah. A commission was put in place specifically to address the Cleveland Sex Crimes Unit as well. Mm. I want you to take a guess at how many rape kits were found that were never sent for testing by the Cleveland Department. If it's more than one, that scares me. But I'm going to say... It's always more than one. I know. I'm going to say 5,000. Oh, you're close. It's 4,000. Really? It's fucking 4,000 rape kits. God, that's disgusting. That's fucking... Dis- that. So 4,000 fucking rape kits. <sighs> when they were finally found, and some of them were tested, because we still don't know if all of them have been tested yet. There is no confirmation of that. And it's an incredible backlog to get tested too yes wow they were able to arrest a hundred rapists a hundred a hundred i just want you to think about that fucking so the city has paid out more than 10 million dollars for what boils down to systemic racism yeah not only that they allowed over a hundred rapists to just go out on the street And that includes child abusers, rapists, attempted rapists. If all you even fucking care about is productivity, if all you fucking from a number standpoint, it's like, are you insane? Like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. If you're a fucking libertarian like my dad, even you have to be fucking bothered by this. Yeah, Mr. Mick. Fucking Mick. I figured out um, what case or what uh, charge he didn't have to face. What was it? Uh, It's really sad. So he did not face charges of kidnapping and felony murder in the case of LaShonda Long, whose head was found in a bucket in the basement of his Imperial Avenue home. The felony murder charge was predicated on the assumption that Long was slain during a kidnapping, but without the rest of her body, they didn't have enough evidence to prove how long Sowell had held her against her will. So there's another count of aggravated murder for her death. But he can't face the kidnapping and felony murder charge. That's fucked. Yeah, it is. I pulled that from, what is this? Cleveland.com. Other changes that they end up having to make to the Cleveland Police Department, the sex crimes unit specifically. Um, As of 2013, there were 13 Cleveland police detectives handling nearly 1,400 sexual assault cases. Oh, my God. That caseload is tremendous. That's a fucking unbelievable. Yeah. That's over 100 cases per detective. That is no... There's no way for that to be successful. No way. Now, I I really like to live in my little fantasy world where, like, Detective Munch and Ice-T get fucking one case a week, and that's yep. all they can focus their time on yeah, because exactly. those are the resources that they have. And then yep. if anything bad were to happen to me, just Munch takes me in his spindly little arms and tells me everything's <laughs> going to be okay. 
<laughs> exactly. I need to know that. You do. You do. We need to have that faith. But you know what? If it was either one of us, we could have that faith. And that's the extra sad part. Yeah. It fucking like it, it breaks my heart. It makes me so fucking angry that yeah. this was allowed to go on for years. Yeah. When I promise you, if it happened in either of our communities that we live in now, this guy would have oh, yeah. caught. No, yeah. And it would have been national news, no doubt. It been fucking national news. Yeah. And I think even after this happened, they tried to fucking brush it under the rug. Yeah. But Cleveland is still struggling, like, with their police department. I don't know what the fuck is going on there. As recently as 2019, they had to demote yet another supervisor in the sex crimes unit for failing to follow up on cases. Wow. They, again, I think they're trying to sweep this all under the rug, maybe, although I don't disagree with this part. The city raised the house on Imperial Avenue. Yeah, I think that's probably a good thing. I think it's the good, uh, the right thing to do. They apparently had the intention of replacing it with a memorial to the 11 women yeah yeah that never happened oh god they told everybody that that was going to happen and then the city never fucking followed through on it jeez can we crowdfund uh, that i think we should fucking crowdfund that i'm gonna end with two quick things i want to read a quote from the cleveland plain dealer that i think really kind of sums this up tony brown and joseph gulien i'm gonna go with gulien hmm <laughs> sorry guys i'm bad with names but they kind of summed up the case essentially saying the evidence suggests for example that saul well while out while ultimately responsible for his own actions was shaped by and operated in a deadly subculture that is under policed and underserved by the social safety net which i think kind of sums up everything from his childhood up until his arrest yeah it does that's kind of his life in a nutshell really yeah, there's nobody there protecting him. Well, he didn't need any protection. But there's nobody there protecting any of these women, any of these victims. Yeah, and nobody's being protected from him. Nobody's being protected from him. So fuck that guy. He's riding in a prison cell. Good. Go to hell. Yeah. Stop wasting the city's money. And support more Lala Billups going to get their fucking master's degree in social work. Absolutely. He's amazing. That's a hero. He's fucking amazing. Yeah, I love... I mean, this story was like, it was hard to hear, and I'm really angry, but I'm also, like, really proud of those women, and uh -huh. just feeling like, wow, you know, that is just a testament to strength, and also just, like, how human that vulnerability was, too, you know, like... Uh -huh. And the, I don't know, there's just something about that, the fortitude to get through, like, the most traumatic thing you could possibly go through, you know? And to do it, to be able to get out of there the way that they did. Yeah. So there's this, so everybody's always familiar with, like, the fight or flight response, right? Yeah. And some more clever people are more familiar with, like, the fight, flight, or freeze response. Yes, me. I'm clever. <laughs> What I think a lot of people don't always, we don't teach it well enough, I'll put it that way, is the fawn response. Mm. Is when you're in a dangerous situation to, 
to kind of empathize and give the aggressor what they want in order yeah. to get out. I've read uh, a lot about the fawn response recently. Yeah, it. I think it's it's fascinating, and I want us to teach it more um, because yeah. I think it is so much more common than anybody. Like, I think if most women had a better understanding of that as a fear response, mm-hmm. they would have such a better understanding of themselves. Yeah, and I think you could then find it empowering too. Yeah, like you're not just this like, oh, you're a bleeding heart. Mm-hmm. No. or like oh you're being manipulative because i feel like that's what people get like blame it on yeah no it's it's thinking your way out of a bad situation yeah and these women that we talked about that's exactly what they fucking did yeah it really is one more thing because i want to put a little bit like a moment of hope in there yeah and again i'll put this on our on our instas black and missing Dot com was a um, kind of an independent group that supports families that are missing loved ones, specifically in black communities. Mm-hmm. So go to blackandmissinginc.com, donate to them, give them some support so that they can do the work that the Cleveland police are not. Hell yeah. Fuck yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So I hate that I, that has to exist, but it does have to exist. So. I, I fucking hate that it has to exist too. Yeah. So now that I broke your heart and maybe empowered you, I don't. Yeah. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to need some reflection, I guess, to figure out where, <laughs> where I'm left now. But. All right. Grab your crystals. <laughs> she has an amethyst and a quartz. She's going to go. She's going to go think on this. I'm going to go to bed and then I'm going to think on it. You want to take us out with some outros? Yeah. So, I mean, like we said in the beginning, we are like shocked and thrilled that people are listening to us. So <laughs> thank you for being here and for hanging with us and for um, listening to the stories of these women, because that's really, really important that their stories are heard. So we appreciate just being in solidarity with you, listening to these amazing survivor tales and also grieving these victims so yeah like we've said before we would love to connect with people on social media so you can catch us on facebook at midwretched and instagram the same way you can also email us episode suggestions and commentary and all that good stuff at midwretched at gmail.com and we would be very very happy to hear from you unless you're mean which we don't like in the midwest no we don't like mean people here we really we're too soft for it we like kindness and and cheese curds yeah. Yes. Kindness <laughs> and dairy. Exactly. <laughs> so, so eat your cheese note, and be nice. Eat cheese and be nice. <laughs> Love you. <laughs>